listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. What kind of lifestyle did Jesus envision for you when he hung on the cross? What type of lifestyle did Jesus envision for you when he hung on the cross? That's an important question to not only ask, but also to answer, because around this great nation of ours, there's a terrible tragedy happening in this nation where we have some of the best seminaries on earth, some of the best Bible colleges on earth, some of the best Bible teaching churches on earth. There's a terrible tragedy that's taking place, and it's that people are merely educating themselves about what the Bible says. It's very possible, especially with the passage of time, the longer you're a Christian, the longer it's been since the moment you've accepted Christ, the greater tendency there is, I know it's true in my life, I'm just being honest with you, that when I crack open the Bible, I begin to go into information mode. That seems to be the default mechanism of our reading and our application of the Bible tends to get lost in the midst of that. You see, what's important in Bible study and Bible meditation is application. The Bible has been given to us not simply to become more familiar with what the Bible says, but to apply what the Bible says. Remember the Pharisees, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them during Jesus' day, and not one of them was chosen to be an apostle. And they were scholars in the Old Testament. They knew their Old Testament frontwards and backwards. They debated with others about it. Mere Bible knowledge will not bring about a transformation. And that's what needs to happen in the United States of America. What's happening today in our nation is completely unnecessary. What's happening in our nation with the racial division, with the fear that is filling up most people, the fear that's welling up in most people instead of faith, all of that is unnecessary. At a time in our nation where we're more divided than perhaps at any other time since the Civil War Only there are a lot more people in the United States of America now than there were in the Civil War. This division that we're experiencing and the fear that we're experiencing and the difficulties that we're experiencing, they are a byproduct of something I'm going to venture to say, and that something is the fact that I think we are reading the Bible for informational purposes only. And if you want to see what the cumulative effect is of a group of people who are reading the Bible for information purposes instead of application, we have a very real case study, I think, here in the United States of America. How can it be that in a nation with so many seminaries, so many Bible colleges, so many Bible teaching churches, this nation can be in the situation that it's in? What I'm proposing to you, what I'm suggesting is that I think the reason why it's happening in the United States, let's not be over-spiritual and say, oh, it's due to eschatological end times prophetic reality, that this is all inescapable and unavoidable. Listen, you don't know and neither do I whether we're at one minute before midnight, 
For all we know, it could be 6 p.m. on the prophetic time clock of things. There could be a whole lot more that needs to happen on not only the world platform, but also in the United States of America. So don't be so quick to blame things that are happening now on the Kesara Sarah, what will be will be. It's all happening according to what was prophesied about. You don't know, and neither do I, where we are on the prophetic time clock of things. But what we, I think, can say, if we're honest with ourselves, is that the tendency is that with the passage of time, we begin to read the Bible for informational purposes only. We don't intend to do that, but we default to that. And when we begin to read the Bible for information purposes only, we miss what the Bible has been given to us for. The reason why the Bible has been given to us is for the purpose of application, application, application that leads to transformation. Information in the Bible is for the purpose of application, and when we apply the information that we have in the Bible transformation begins. Our lives begin to reflect the glory of Jesus Christ. So in a very real sense, information is to lead to application, which is to lead to transformation, which is to lead to a reflection of the life, the character of Jesus Christ in your life and in mine. That's what it means to be a Christ follower. And so it's important for you to ask this question, for me to ask this question, for us to each ask this question and to answer it. Is my lifestyle what Jesus envisioned for me when he hung on the cross? Is my lifestyle what Jesus envisioned for me on the cross? That is what makes all the difference in the world. Approaching the Bible with that question, looking for the answer for yourself, that's what makes all the difference in the world in a passage of Scripture like the one we're looking at, Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 26. Because if you've been a follower of Jesus Christ for any length of time, if you're in the church or you've been in the church for any length of time, the danger is is. You could read a passage of scripture like this, been there, done that, seen it before, think you understand it, and miss the most important reason why we need to go back and read again and again the same passages of scripture again and again because we need to apply the information that's in the word of God so that transformation becomes a reality, not a dream. The purpose of all Bible study, the purpose of all Bible reading, the purpose of all Bible meditation, not in the Eastern sense of meditation, but the biblical idea of meditation is to chew on a passage of Scripture, to contemplate a verse of Scripture or more than one verse of Scripture, to let it percolate in our lives, to let ourselves contemplate it at a heart and a mind level all throughout the course of the day. That is biblical meditation, all right, before somebody wants to try to take words and put them in my mouth. Biblical meditation is to contemplate a passage of Scripture, to fix your eyes on it, to fix your heart on it, so that it gets deep down into the recesses of who you are, so that you remember what it says, you're focusing and treasuring upon it in your heart, but not just for the purpose of information, it's got to be for the purpose of application. And so when a circumstance comes up in your life, when a circumstance arises in your life, you're, you're able to then draw from that reservoir of God's word, courtesy of meditating on the word of God, 
studying the Word of God, reading the Word of God, so that the information leads to application, which leads to transformation and the reflection of Jesus Christ in your life and mine. So when we look at Luke chapter 23, verse 26, when we have this understanding in mind and we ask ourselves this question, is my life what Jesus envisioned for me when he hung on the cross? By the time we're done, you'll be able to take this information and apply it in a practical way in your life. That's what the Bible is all about. So that practically speaking, we apply the Word of God, we become more like Christ in terms of character, and we become world changers and people of influence as the overflow of our own hearts and lifestyles changing. So with that in mind, let's look at Luke 23, verse 26. And as they led him, Jesus, as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Libya, Simon of Cyrene, that's the location, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people, large crowd, and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills cover us. An allusion to Revelation chapter 6, verse 16, where that actually becomes a fulfillment. And then a reference also to Hosea chapter 10, verse 8. And then Jesus says this, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? And Jesus is helping the people in his day and he's helping the people in our day understand that there is a contrast coming upon the world. This is the way the people of Israel and the Romans conspiring together rejected the anointed, the appointed, the almighty son of God when he was there in their midst. And if they did that, on the heels of Jesus walking, talking, teaching, preaching, performing miraculous sign after miraculous sign and wonder, then what will happen once Jesus is out of the earth? That's what's being presented here when Jesus says, if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when the wood is dry? That's what he's saying here. See, what happened was Jesus was on the earth for about three years, performing miraculous sign and wonder after miraculous sign and wonder, continually stupefying, mesmerizing the crowds and putting the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the elders, the leaders of the nation of Israel in their place again and again and again. But here, it seems, humanly speaking, that there is a reversal of events. This is patently unlike anything that the people have seen in the life, the teachings, the ministry of Jesus for about three years. Now, instead of mesmerizing them with his words, instead of speaking on his own defense when he could have, he had that opportunity before Pilate, he had that opportunity before the Sanhedrin, he had that opportunity before Herod, and each one of those instances, Jesus sometimes defers to those he's standing before and allows them the opportunity to give testimony about himself, and at other times, like in the case of Herod, he remains completely silent. 
So this is a reversal, humanly speaking, from the oohs and the ahs that Jesus was able to have on people, the effect that his teaching was able to have on people as one who taught with authority, the scripture says, not like the scribes. Jesus taught in a fundamentally different way that when Jesus spoke, people listened. And Jesus didn't just say mesmerizing awe-inspiring things that pointed people to himself and his identity as the Savior, their Messiah, the anointed and the appointed one, the chosen one of God. He also performed miraculous signs and wonders. And so the crowd that is lamenting, they're scratching their heads. What has happened? What is happening to Jesus? And Jesus says, listen, if you think this is bad, wait till what comes upon the earth when I'm no longer here physically in your presence. Because if they do these things while I am here, can you imagine what the world is going to be like when I'm no longer here in the flesh physically in your midst? And I think it's safe to say that we're beginning to get a bit of a taste of what the world will be like through what's happening now in the United States of America. And let me remind all of us that what's happening in the United States of America, not spoken of specifically in Scripture, since all of Scripture and all of prophecy revolves around the nation of Israel, not the United States of America, what we're seeing in the United States of America can just be a warm-up act for the icy cold conditions of the world that are yet on the horizon to be fulfilled in their time and in their circumstances. And there are Christians around the United States of America who are quaking and shaking in their boots, fearful about what's happening, and we have forgotten what has been happening all around the world for people any and every time that they stand up for Jesus Christ and are being persecuted and have been persecuted in ways that we are only beginning to comprehend, and I'm not so sure that our discomfort is more over the change in our lifestyles being upset than it is about our concern for the advancement of the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ. See, that's why people in other countries are being persecuted for the sake of Christ, not because they're mostly concerned with their comfort and the convenience of their own lifestyle changing. They're being concerned. They are concerned about their ability to preach and teach the Word of God and to live for Jesus Christ being hindered. That's real persecution. And so if this is what they were doing when Jesus was there in their midst... Can you imagine what is coming on the world? You don't need to imagine very much. Go to Matthew 24. Go to Luke 21. Read the scriptures. Read the book of Revelation, and you will see for yourself what is coming on the world that Jesus promised and predicted that is inescapable and how Jesus would want you and me at this particular time in history to ask this question and to answer it. Is the lifestyle that I'm living what Jesus had in mind for me when he went to the cross? Am I living the kind of life, the kind of lifestyle that greatly glorifies Jesus Christ in light of what he endured on his way to the cross and when he was on the cross. 
Because all Bible reading, all Bible study, all sermons, all messages, rightly so, biblically speaking, exist for one purpose only, to glorify God as the byproduct of living a life that is fully surrendered to Him. It's only when we live surrendered lives to God that our lifestyles begin to glorify Him. And so Jesus asks this question, if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? And then we read in verse 32 of Luke 23, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that's called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus is being sandwiched between two criminals who are being crucified, crucifixion reserved for the darkest of the dark, the most devilish of the devilish. If somebody was being crucified, they were being crucified for the most heinous of all crimes. And the Romans were making an example of them. Jesus, as we know from what we've looked at together and what we're looking at here now, was innocent. He was an innocent man, ironically condemned to die between two criminals who deserve that type of death, as we'll see. One on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. So we have the rulers scoffing him, and now the soldiers chime in. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine. Now we're going to understand the significance and the brutality, the evil gesture that's being presented here by the soldiers for somebody who is experiencing dehydration, for somebody who needs a cool, soothing drink as your mouth becomes so dry that your tongue begins to stick to the roof of your mouth, the last thing that you hunger and hanker for when you're outside. I was outside trying to work on a chicken coop on Friday, and I was sweating like a pig. I look like a pig, I'm sure. And my shirt, my T-shirt was stuck to my body. It was so saturated with sweat. Now, if I went inside and asked my wife, hey, I need something cold or cool to drink, or maybe my wife came out with a glass of nice, sparkling, sour wine vinegar. Man, that's grounds for divorce, isn't it? That's spousal cruelty. You don't have to know much about anything about heat and about refreshment to know that offering somebody sour wine, wine vinegar, is an exceptionally cruel thing to do to somebody who's experiencing crucifixion. So the rulers are mocking Jesus, saying, hey, he saved others, why don't you save yourself? The soldiers are mocking Jesus with what they're doing here. 
offering him sour wine and saying in verse 37, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, a placard that said, this is the king of the Jews, one of the criminals. Now the criminals chime in here who were hanging, railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And if we read Matthew 27, we see that actually both of the criminals were railing against Jesus. But something happens to one of the criminals as his eyes are opened and his heart is softened. One of the two has a transformation that takes place. Verse 40, but the other rebuked him, meaning rebuking the other criminal. There's this discussion that's happening on the crosses. This dialogue that is happening on the crosses where one is saying, save yourself. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. Now we could speculate. Maybe he's not too concerned about Jesus saving himself, but he's certainly concerned about, hey Jesus, if you really are who you say you are, why don't you at least save me? And the other one, the other criminal says, but the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Do you not reverence God? Do you not respect God? Do you not honor God? Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. One of the criminals recognizes that Jesus didn't deserve what he was going through, but that he and the other criminal deserved it. He's done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. Now, contrast to paradise is what was happening to me earlier in the week as I was doing something that I don't often do. I was making dinner and I had some chicken that I was cutting up. And while I was cutting up that chicken on that cutting board, into my house. Can you believe the audacity here? Into my house and into my kitchen while I was cutting the chicken. It's an unusual event in my family because my wife is the one who knows how to cook and does the meals the way a meal should be properly prepared. Into my house and into my kitchen as I'm cutting up this chicken a big, hairy fly comes across my way. And you know what a fly loves to do. I mean, this fly was so hairy and so disgusting. I'm sure there was some type of bacteria hanging on, latched on to some of those hairs on the back of that hairy fly that needed a shave. Disgusting fly. Who knows where that fly had been? And that fly has his eyes with all that ugly stuff, the way that flies can see multiple images. That fly has in his crosshairs my chicken. And so I'm trying to swap this fly away as I'm trying to cut this chicken thinking there ain't no way that I'm letting this fly who's been God knows where, literally, getting on this piece of chicken and spoiling our meal. 
Well, contemplate for a moment what Jesus is enduring here on the cross. He's been rejected by the rulers who are scoffing and mocking at him. If you're the Christ, save yourself. Wagging their heads, mocking and scoffing him, the soldiers saying, if you're the Christ, if you're the anointed one, and then the criminals. Jesus is being crucified between two hairy, disgusting flies. Two criminals who are deserving the punishment that they're experiencing. And one of them, we don't know whether it's on his right side or his left side, but one of them says, hey, if you're the Christ, why don't you put your money where your mouth is, save yourself and save us. And the other criminal who had been railing on him does something that's noteworthy. Two criminals equally guilty deserving of the punishment that they're experiencing on the cross, one of them agreeing with God about what he already knows, that he's guilty. And that's what humility is. A humble person is somebody who agrees with God about what God already knows. And it is a precursor. It's something that must happen in your life before you can come to know Jesus as your Savior, your God, your Master, and your Lord. You have to agree with God about the truth that he already knows, which is you are guilty, you are deserving to experience a punishment and a penalty for the guilt of your sin. And this is exactly what one of the two criminals is doing. Look more closely. Verse 40, the other rebuked the other criminal, saying, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The criminal recognizes his guilt before God, recognizes that Jesus is who Jesus has been saying he was. He humbles himself by agreeing with God about what he already knows, submits himself to God, and then asks Jesus for forgiveness. We don't have all of the detail here, but we know that he's asked Jesus for forgiveness because of the response of Jesus. Look what Jesus says in verse 43. He said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. Jesus says, truly, today, this day, everything is coming to a culmination. The hundreds and hundreds of years of prophecy after prophecy recorded in the Old Testament scriptures are now taking their fulfillment with Jesus going to the cross, hanging on the cross, the ministry of Jesus for about three years, all of the teachings of Jesus, all of the miraculous signs and wonders of Jesus, all now pointing to and culminating to the pinnacle of Jesus' life, his work, his ministry, which is the cross. And what we're seeing is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 5. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his stripes, you have been healed. We see Jesus with great deliberation, with intentionality, knowing that this is a necessary step in his life and his ministry. In fact, all of his life and ministry was leading to this very point that would result in not only the forgiveness of sin for the criminal, the thief, 
the convicted man who was dying a death out of his own mouth that he recognized he really deserved. But the death of Jesus is also exactly what was necessary for the forgiveness of your sins and mine. Each and every one of us is just as guilty as the two thieves on the cross. One of them, one of the ugly flies, obstinate, can't see who Jesus is, won't soften his heart about who Jesus is and mocks him and reviles him, makes fun of him. But the other one, something happens to his eyes, something happens to his heart, and he says to Jesus, Lord, remember me. When you come into your kingdom, kingdom equals paradise. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, this very day, when Jesus says truly, he means what he says, and he says what he means, as Jesus always does, any and every time Jesus spoke. And any and every time that Jesus speaks in his word, the Bible, it is yes and it is amen. Any and every time. One of those criminals had a removal of the blindness from his eyes, a softening in his heart, and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, my kingdom is paradise, and this day you will be with me there. So you need to remember this as you're praying for people in your life, in your life who do not know Jesus as, you, as their Savior, who have not yet come to know Christ as their Lord, who haven't given their life to Christ as their Messiah. Their eyes are blinded, their heart is hardened. And one of the most effective things that you can do as somebody who sees, as somebody who knows, as somebody who has humbled yourself. You've humbled yourself and given your life to Christ. You see what other people cannot see. You see that Jesus was and is innocent and that Jesus paid the penalty that you deserve, that I deserved in our guilt. And yet we couldn't pay that price because we have a problem that Jesus didn't have. And that problem is that we really are guilty. We really are guilty of sin. This is what Isaiah 53, 5 means. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Jesus. There is a legal proclamation for you and for me as a follower of Jesus Christ that God counts it the moment we give our life to Christ, he counts it as just as if we've never sinned. That we're given eternal life as a byproduct. Did you know that eternal life is a byproduct of having peace with God? Being declared righteous by Almighty God, one of the beautiful things about God, there are so many beautiful things about God, but one of the prime things that you need to understand, that I need to understand, that we need to revisit again and again, is that you're no longer, if you've given your life to Christ, at war with God. So stop fighting Him. Stop acting as if you are at war with God. The punishment that brought you and me as followers of Jesus who have accepted him as the Messiah, the Savior, and the Lord. The punishment that brought us peace was given to him. So when you're praying for somebody who has not yet given their life to Christ, ask God to remove the blindness from their eyes. Ask God to remove the hardness from their heart. And if you're in a position where you are not yet sure 
that if you were to stand before God today, whether or not you would be declared righteous because of your faith in Jesus, then that's a pretty good indication that you need to settle the issue, give your life to Christ, acknowledge him the way the thief, the criminal on the cross did. Very important to understand. Two men equally guilty, one man wanting to have the consequence of forgiveness but not asking for it. There are many people who want salvation and the forgiveness of their sins. They want their lifestyle to become easier. They want God's blessing, but they're not willing to repent. They're not willing to humble themselves. It is humility that God requires. It is humility that enabled the criminal on the cross to hear these amazing words about paradise. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus, dehydrated as he was, mocked and ridiculed as he was, truly I say to you, to you, this day, You'll have what you're asking for. You who don't deserve it. You who know what you deserve. By nothing you've done hanging on this cross, you will be with me in paradise. That's what Jesus does for every single person who calls on his name. Every single person who acknowledges their sin and understands what they deserve and understands what they don't deserve, we don't deserve to be forgiven. There's nothing we can do to get ourselves forgiven except to accept the one who was sinless who took our place on the cross. If God can forgive and accept a criminal like that, And certainly, he can accept and forgive a criminal like you. Because all of us are just like those two criminals, but either we are being obstinate and wanting the blessings of God without the repentance that's required, or we humble ourselves, acknowledge who Jesus is, recognize what we deserve and what we don't deserve, and simply by undeserved favor of God, that's all God requires of us, to accept the one that he sent. Do you understand? Do we understand that if you realize that Jesus is the anointed, the appointed, the Messiah, the Savior, if you realize that Jesus is your Savior, you have been given a privilege, a sacredness, a blessedness. Many are called. Few are chosen. Do you realize that you've been chosen to live a lifestyle that glorifies and honors Jesus? There is no point in simply mentally ascending to the facts of the crucifixion if those facts don't grip us to the point of surrendering to Jesus and living more fully and fruitfully for him here and now. Is the life that you're living right now 
what Jesus envisioned for you when he hung on the cross? Great question to ask again and again. And when we're reading a passage of scripture like this, to appreciate and to understand that it is the information provided in the Bible that we are supposed to get busy in the process of application that leads to transformation and the reflection of the life of Christ in our lives. That's what it's all about. That's what it's there for. Now let's look at where this criminal is heading and where you're heading and where everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is heading if you simply, by undeserved favor, deserving to go into an eternity separate from him because of our sin, by the undeserved grace of God, accept what Jesus has done. Verse 42, chapter 23, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That word paradise, it's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, Paul had been given amazing visions and revelations from Almighty God. And if we were to continue to read, we would understand that because of these surpassingly great, unique visions and revelations, there was given to him a messenger from Satan, a thorn in the flesh to keep him from becoming conceited. And so remember that the next time you might be going through a difficulty that you're facing, the difficulty could be as a direct result of God entrusting you with great riches, material riches, that are to be used for his glory and his kingdom. An upbringing of privilege, Christian privilege, where you understand the Bible, you know what the Bible says, and now you're responsible to help other people know what the Bible says so that they can apply what the Bible says, live a transformed life that reflects the glory of God. And so Paul is recounting here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, the things that have happened to him and the reasons why. And here he says in verse 1 of chapter 12, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man. He's speaking of himself in third person. I know of a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Jesus on the cross saying to the criminal, you who deserve an eternity separate from me, you who deserve to be in the place that you're in now, you're getting your just desserts. But because of your acknowledgement of me, because of my undeserved favor of you, I tell you this very day, you will be with me in paradise. This is the same place that Paul is referring to here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Now there's the first heaven, there's the second heaven, and there's the third heaven. This is what Paul is referencing in verse 2 of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The first heaven, you can look up here on earth and you can look at the clouds, the first heaven. You can go beyond that into the stratosphere where the stars are and the planets are. That's the second heaven. But when you're talking about the third heaven, biblically, you're talking about the very dwelling place of Almighty God, where God himself is. And Paul is saying that I was given exceedingly great revelations and visions, and I was caught up into the third heaven, whether it was actually me in my body or whether I was having an out-of-body experience, I don't know. But the reality of the visions, the reality of the revelations is indisputable. 
I saw things that I cannot even write to you about. Oh, what Paul might have seen. We don't have a record of it. Of what's taking place in paradise. This is the place that that criminal is headed. This is the place where you are headed, where I am headed, at least for a time until we see in the book of Revelation chapter 21, the new heaven and the new earth where there's a theocracy on earth where Jesus is ruling and reigning on the throne of David in a literal kingdom, in a literal heaven and a literal earth. That's where we're headed. But in the meantime, look with me at Revelation chapter 2 verse 7. Revelation chapter 2 verse 7 where the Lord is giving this word to the church of Ephesus. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. The tree of life which is in the paradise of God. The same word that is used here. Now the gospel is simply this. That you are guilty and I'm guilty. There's nothing that you can do. Take it from the thief on the cross. Take it from the criminal on the cross. There's nothing we can do to be forgiven of all our sins and get a final destination of paradise because we don't deserve that. The only thing that we can do is acknowledge the truth about who we are before God, that we are sinners deserving eternal condemnation. And that the sinless one, Jesus, hung on the cross, the punishment that brought you peace, that brought me peace, was upon him. By his stripes, you are born again. You are healed. Your sins are removed. That's what Isaiah 53, 5 means. By his stripes, by everything he went through, by his persecution, by his rejection, by his agony, by his hanging on the cross, he paid it all. And there's nothing that you can do, nothing that I can do apart from accepting the person and the works of Jesus Christ. That's what leads in the forgiveness of sin. That's what leads in the peace with God. And that's what determines your eternal destination. And so in light of all of that, when we begin to really understand what the cross is about and what Jesus endured and the fact that he took your place when he hung on the cross, he had you in mind. It's totally appropriate to ask the question, are you living the kind of life that Jesus envisioned for you when he hung on the cross? This is what takes our Bible knowledge from mere information into application, into transformation, and the reflection of the glory of God, the reflection of the character of Jesus Christ, so that when other people look at you, they're not just looking at you. They're looking at a person who deserved condemnation. They're looking at a person who deserved eternal separation. They're looking at a person who deserved to eternally be at war with God, but now they're looking at a person by the undeserved favor of God, in a word, grace has been forgiven, not because of what they've done, but because of what Jesus did. That is the gospel. And an understanding of that is what leads us to lifestyles that are continually being adjusted so that the glory and the honor and the fear of God, the respect for God, the appreciation for God, 
is at the forefront with increasing momentum. If there's not momentum in your life toward the glory of God, you have forgotten the cross of Jesus Christ. The life of a disciple is all about forward momentum. And even in my own life, the times where I have backslidden, and I have, you don't get a perfect pastor preaching perfect sermons who lived a perfect life. You get a criminal who could have been one of those criminals on the cross. Pick the left or the right side of Jesus. It makes no difference. The reality is that every single one of us deserves to be in an eternity separate from God, an eternity separate from Jesus, and our only hope and only help is found in what happened on a real cross in real history on a real place called the skull or Golgotha. And by placing our faith in Jesus Christ on that cross, the reality that it happened, the reality that your sin and mine was nailed with Jesus on that cross, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. That's the understanding that should lead to a transformation of our lifestyles. Lord, everything you give me is now for you. Every breath that I take is now for you. Lord, in my marriage, I need to be reflecting Jesus and how I treat my wife. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her not waiting for her to become perfect, but perfecting her in the midst of her imperfection. Husbands, if you don't have a growing momentum in your life to unconditionally love your wife, you do not understand the love of God, the punishment that brought you peace that was placed upon Jesus. There must be growing momentum in your life as a husband where you are loving your wife, loving your spouse as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And that happens as you're in the word of God, not for mere informational purposes, but for the purpose of application. You will find what I have found. It is through the application of God's word, that God, courtesy of his word and the Holy Spirit and the crucifixion of the flesh brings transformation in the way I think and the way I act. And then the reflection of Jesus becomes a reality in my marriage. Wives, love your husbands and submit to your husbands as the church submits to Jesus. Now, we live in a culture where submission is a dirty word. If I submit, that's a reflection of inferiority. I'm making a concession. You are never more Christ-like in your marriage than when you submit to your husband. Never. And I'm not talking about the instances where there might be an abusive husband. That's not the purpose of this message. There are exceptions where if somebody is abusive, that abuse is a sin issue and a rampant sin issue. So I'm not talking about submission, no matter what your husband might be doing. I'm talking about making it your ambition to love God 
and to understand that the reflection of the glory of God is manifest or hindered by what's happening in your marriage. If you don't believe me, look at Ephesians when you get a chance. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, chapter 5. And you'll understand that marriage is one of the primary tools that God has given to his people to reflect his goodness and his glory. And that's why marriage is under attack today. That's why marriage is being redefined outside of the biblical definition of marriage. Because if you can attack marriage, you can pervert the love of God. It can't really be perverted, but the understanding of it can be perverted, of the love of God for the church and the love of the church for God. And so there should be a transformation in the words that come out of your mouth, in the conduct in your marriage, the conduct with your children, the conduct with your parents, there should be transformation taking place. And that's how you know whether or not you are reading the Bible for merely informational purposes or for the purpose of application. This stuff really happened. There really was a cross and there really is a savior who hung on that cross at a place called Golgotha or the skull. And this is supposed to make all the difference in our lives. Look with me. Chapter 23, verse 33. When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Now, some people speculate as to what was Golgotha. Can we locate the biblical place of Golgotha, the place called the skull. There's basically two concepts here. Maybe there's a merging of the two. Some people believe that the name indicates the brutality of what took place there. It was called the place of the skull because it was a place of death. That's where they crucified criminals. That's where they made a public spectacle of people who rose up against Rome. They were crucified at Golgotha, the place of the skull, and that's enough. The name itself is sufficient to indicate what took place there. Others speculate that maybe there's something about the physical appearance of Golgotha, the place called the skull, that maybe the rock enclave actually looked like or perhaps looks like a skull. And maybe that's how it got the name. And some others believe that maybe it was a combination of the two. Now, we don't know, ultimately speaking, but a few years ago, I was privileged to be in a place just outside of Jerusalem, and there's a rock formation there that some speculate about today that this perhaps is the place of the skull. We don't know whether it's true or not, but I thought it might be a little bit helpful for us today to imagine what actually was taking place at this place called the skull. Not necessarily this place called the skull or Golgotha, but a place called the skull. And if you look at this picture just to the right of center, maybe you can make out two eyes and a nose. And on the top, that could have been the place where people were crucified. Right in front of it could have been the place that they were crucified. And here it is from a little bit of a pulled back angle. You can see the formation that maybe looks like a skull. And the irony is that today it is near an Arab bus station. 
So people speculate about whether Golgotha was the actual location or this is the actual location where it happened because of the rock formation or whether it was just received that name because of what took place there. We can speculate about that all day long if we want to. At the end of the day, we need to understand that on a real cross between two real criminals at a place called the Skull with tremendous historicity, A sinless, perfect, flawless Messiah, Savior, substitute sacrifice died on that cross for the forgiveness of your sins so that your lifestyle could change from the inside out. That because you have a change of heart and a change of eyesight that you recognize who Jesus is, God would do a work from the inside out and transform everything in your life that you would reflect the glory and the goodness of God. Now, we can speculate about locations and theories about why it's called the skull, but one of the things we can't speculate about is Psalm 22. Look with me at the 22nd Psalm. An amazing passage of Scripture. We need to understand that the Psalter, what we call the book of Psalms, was compiled, finalized about 300 years before the time of Christ. Moses... Others have written Psalms. David, the primary author in the book of Psalms, it's called the Psalter or the book of Psalms, put together, finalized about 300 years before the arrival of Jesus. David, King David, lived about a thousand years before the coming of Jesus Christ. So whether you want to take it by the fulfillment of the book of Psalms, the completion of the Psalter, the book of Psalms being about 300 years before the time of Christ, or whether you want to take it to about a thousand years before Christ, when David penned this Psalm, the significance is that things are going down for the life of Jesus exactly the way the Old Testament says it would happen. And here we have in Psalm 22 an amazing depiction of what a crucified life looks like. Hundreds of years before Jesus experienced it, here it is prophesied about, predicted about, David writing to a certain degree about his own experience, but in a greater degree, prophetically, predictively, about the ultimate fulfillment that would be found in Jesus. Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Among the final words of Jesus when he's on the cross. We'll get there in our future time. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. David recognizing that God, the God of Israel, continually delivered his people. And yet, in this particular instance, David is scratching his head, wondering, why am I not being delivered? You're good, you're true, you're just, you're holy. Can you deliver me the way you've delivered your people in the past? But then he goes deeper here in verse 6. Prophetically, predictively, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Sounds remarkably like Luke twenty-three thirty-five. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. 
Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan, a green, fertile area, meaning that these bulls were particularly hardy and healthy. USDA prime rib grade A1, okay? Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd or a piece of broken clay so fragile that if it was touched, it would potentially just shatter. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. This is the effect of intense dehydration, intense thirst. For dogs encompass me. Dogs being used symbolically in the New Testament in a reference to the Gentiles. Indicating here, in hindsight, being 2020, Jesus being surrounded by the Romans, who are the instruments through which the crucifixion takes place. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Now, the Hebrew word that's used there for hands could also be translated as arms. So those of among us who might say, well, anatomically, it wasn't possible for Jesus to have been crucified in his hands because it couldn't have held up the body weight, could have easily been here in the wrist, which would have been an anatomically perfect place to put a nail to hold a crucified body up on a cross. And the Hebrew supports that. They've pierced my hands or my arms and my feet. I can count all my bones or could have been translated this way. I must display all of my bones as, as like a person who's innocent walking down the street and ransacked by criminals beaten and stripped of his clothing to get to the money, to get to the goods that that innocent person might have had. And that's exactly what had happened to Jesus as he hung naked on the cross. I can count all my bones or I must display all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Prophesied about hundreds of years before their fulfillment in Jesus. In his ministry, in his work on the cross for you and for me. We can debate about the physical location of Golgotha, the place of the skull, but what we cannot debate is the brutality of what Jesus went through for you and for me. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. This really took place between two guilty criminals with Jesus sandwiched in between entirely and completely innocent. And then we read this in Luke 23, beginning in verse 36. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription or a sign over him. And we read in John chapter 19, verses 19 and 20, that the inscription, which says here, this is the king of the Jews, was in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. 
So whatever your language was, you would be able to understand. There would be no mistake in understanding what Jesus was sentenced to. And notice that it is not a pronunciation of guilt. It's simply an affirmation and a proclamation. This is the king of the Jews. So no matter who you were, you'd be able to read it in Aramaic or in Latin or in Greek. And it's interesting the way Luke puts it in his gospel in the original Greek language. It would be translated more appropriately in the English as this. The king of the Jews. This one. Because he leaves that phrase, this one, at the end of the sentence. And what Luke wants to drive home is what God Almighty wants to drive home in your life and in mine. Many will say, I am the Christ. Many have said they are the Christ. There are many people who have been crucified, but only one crucified because he made the claim to be king of the Jews. And it's this one, Jesus of Nazareth. This is what's driven home in what Pilate had written there in the inscription over Jesus. And the Jews, if you read the other gospel accounts, the Jews came up and they said, don't write he is the king of the Jews, write that he claimed to be king of the Jews. And Pilate said, no, what I've written will remain. What God wants you to understand and for me to understand, what he wants all people to understand is that we can make no mistake about the identity of Jesus Christ. That he was completely innocent, not deserving a criminal's death. That the people who deserved to hang on that cross, the criminal on his left, the criminal on his right, that's you and that's me. And that there's nothing that you can do, nothing that I can do that is worthy of a place eternally speaking, in the presence of Almighty God known as paradise. There's nothing that you can do, nothing that I could do, nothing that that criminal could do deserving of an eternity in paradise beginning at the very moment when he died. And that is the gospel, my friends, that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, become sin so that we could become what we shouldn't become. We have no place becoming the righteousness of God. That we could experience a peace as a byproduct of his punishment. There was a real place called Golgotha, a place of despicable, dastardly, dark, devilish things that resulted not in just the crucifixion of Jesus, but the peace that would result because of that crucifixion. And it's in light of these truths, the truth of the skull, the truth of the inscription, which is a proclamation, and the truth of how God could forgive a guilty criminal that should motivate us and take us from the point of merely information about the cross. It should lead us to the point of application so that there's transformation and the reflection of the character of Jesus Christ with growing momentum for anybody and everybody who says they're a follower of Jesus Christ. 
You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.